It's your pal Siri. You have found the Ambiguously Blind Podcast, where we are challenging beliefs and revealing abilities that make people extraordinary. With your host, a guy that's great at hearing, but terrible at listening, John Grimes. Hey, 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 greetings. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in, subscribing, and supporting the podcast experience. Our guest for this episode is Cheryl Ellis. She's the author of the book, Making It Work, which talks about managing health conditions through ADA workplace accommodations. I thought it was a fitting topic for the podcast and wanted to know a little bit more. Hey, Cheryl, thanks for joining the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Thanks for having me. Man, I tell you, Cheryl, it's kind of crazy. We uh, connected on LinkedIn, right? Yep. And as it turns out, we have a lot of uh, kind of crazy, maybe maybe coincidental things in our past that um, really connect us in a kind of a bizarre way. It's almost a little freakishly bizarre, actually. But it's uh, it's a pleasure to connect with you and have a chat with you for the uh, for the podcast here. Yes, I'm excited about being here. Yeah, we're gonna see if we can make it work. Or make we're gonna we're talking about making it work, uh, mm-hmm. which is the title of your book, and you talk about workplace accommodations and ADA type things, and that's super interesting to me, and I think most people that listen to this, as this is the uh, ambiguously blind podcast after all. But before we get into that, Cheryl, I want to make sure I we know Cheryl. I'm gonna ask you some kind of wacky questions. Sure. What is your favorite band or type of music? I'd say I love Maroon 5. Um, I, I bet I like a lot of jazz. I'm, as I've gotten older, I love classical music like more than anything now. I listen to a lot of classical music. And I would not say that growing up that that was anything I listened to. Yeah, I can relate to that. I'm kind of into jazz as I age as well. Now, going back to Maroon 5, like, is, do you like old Maroon 5 or new Maroon 5 or just all Maroon Old Maroon 5. 5. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All the old music, you know, the 90s and the, oh, yes. 2000, the 90s, 2010. Were, the 90s were good times, <laughs> you know? Yes. yes. I don't want to date ourselves here exactly, but those were, <laughs> <laughs> those were, is it, do you know the first, is it Songs About Jane or something? Is that the name of the Room 5 album? I think so. I can't even remember. Yeah. There's several of his band, his, um, uh, some of his music that I've listened to, but I can't tell you what the names of them are. I love just the group itself, the way that they communicate, their team. You know, I guess it's my HR background. I love the kind of team camaraderie they have together, the whole band. Yep. Yep. I'm a fan too. I like the older stuff. Also, that's um, good stuff. Okay. And you're an author. Yes. And I that, that likely makes you a reader. So what is yes. the most influential or impactful book you've read? I'm, I'm kind of in the psychological arena, again, being the background of HR, um, and it's uh, The Happiness Trap. The Happiness Trap. The Happiness Trap. Okay. So we all believe we have to be happy all the time, but being happy all the time doesn't mean purpose and value, right? It doesn't always mean, because when you're doing like the work that we do, there's a lot of ups and downs. You know, you're not happy all the time. Now you're doing what you want to do. You know, you've got purpose and and you're feeling fulfilled with what you do. But there's a lot of ups and downs with that, right? Frustration, fear, anxiety. But overall, there's a sense of purpose. Um, So it's a really good book. I highly recommend it to everybody. It's it's a life-changing type of book. So, And I look at it frequently to remind myself. 
Okay, we'll link it in the show notes down below. So just scroll down, you'll see it there. Okay, Coke or Pepsi? Oh, definitely Coke. Well, isn't Dr. Pepper Pepsi? Uh, no, I don't think so. What is what is Dr. Pepper under? I mean, as far as who owns it, no, it's owned by like Schreps yeah. or actually, I think oh, I think Keurig owns Dr. Pepper. Oh, really? Which yeah. actually. As a side note that nobody else will understand, that's just down the street from EDS now, by the way. Yep. Um, mm. In good old Plano, Texas. But uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, Schweppes and what's who makes the eggs? The, the Easter egg candy. You got me there. Cadbury. Cadbury, yeah, the- Cadbury Schweppes, I think, owns Dr. Pepper. Hmm. So I would say it's Coke and Schweppes. I'm a Dr. Pepper fan, so I drink diet Dr. Pepper. Right. I won't hold that against you. I'm a Pepsi guy. <laughs> what is something most people don't know about you? I was an extra in The Matrix. You were an extra in The Matrix? Yeah. That's cool. Okay, so <laughs> You didn't explain. see me in the, you know, you didn't see me in the movie. So I was in between jobs in California. Of course, you know, if, you're, if you live in Northern California, you've been laid off at least once or twice. So you have a lot of ups and downs. I was there during the dot-com bomb, I called it. So I decided, oh, I want to try something different. And so I signed up to be an extra. They needed somebody for the Matrix. There was a thousand of us. And apparently they treated us really well. We had so much food. Oh, my God. I mean, everything you can imagine. And there was um, a movie that happened before that, and I can't remember the name of it, but apparently that that was not funded as well, so the food and the way they were taken care of was very different. So you would sit there for six or seven hours, and they would have you go in and jump down and around if we were in a cave. I think it's one of the second to the last movies I think I was in, and then they come down and videotape you while you're jumping and singing and dancing and all this, but I don't think I was actually captured in the actual video, you know, but I was an extra and I only lasted like two days. I was like, this is the most exhausting thing I've ever done in my life. It's something that everybody needs to do. Highly recommend it. It will change the way you look at movies and everything. Because for a while I'd look at a a movie and that's all I saw was extras. (laughs) You know, but it, it is very insightful. The most educational thing I've ever done as far as, you know, understanding movies and how complicated it is and how much it actually takes to make them. But I won't do it again, probably, you know, okay. if I do it for fun or, you know, but it, it, it was hard work for $65 a month a day, you know. <laughs> so $65 a day, yeah. two days work? Each day. Yeah. People would do it like day in and day out for months and that's how they made their living and it's like wow i could think of other ways to make a living but wow. but you know it was interesting but they most of the people that did it were trying to be you know found right and it's the least likely way that people normally get found okay interesting this one might be kind of strange but have you ever thrown a tortilla in the air at a football game i have not I have watched it. I haven't thought about bringing one. I've seen it happen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I asked that question because one of the things that we have in common is that we went to the same university, uh, Texas Tech right. University out in Lubbock, Texas. And one of the traditions right. at football games is that the uh, student section at kickoffs will, will throw 
tortillas in the air. I don't know the origin of that. Do you know the origin? Of that? No, I have no idea. Did you throw a tortilla? I did. Yeah. Um, okay. Not many times. It still happens. And yeah. I really feel bad for the ground screw or whoever got to clean all that stuff up. That <laughs> That's so true. It's not fun, especially on a rainy game or something. But mm-hmm. it's an odd tradition. I mean, there certainly could be, be worse, but it's, you know, it's unique to our university. It gives us something. And to, they could donate the food to animals or something. So Yeah, that'd be nice. It makes sense. Okay, that's all the crazy questions I have for you. <laughs> But something else that we have in common that happened at our university experiences is meningitis. Now, I have bacterial meningitis. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't, at the time, nobody, I didn't know what meningitis was when they, they told me you have meningitis. I was like, oh, what is that? And I don't, I hadn't, it's been a long time since I'd met somebody that also had meningitis, but you had meningitis as well. A couple years yeah. before me, um, you had the viral version of meningitis, which I admittedly don't mm-hmm. know a lot about. I know a lot about bacterial, but I don't know much about viral. What was your experience like with back, uh, with viral meningitis? It was horrific. Um, you know, my sister at the time was going to the college and her now husband was going to college and I couldn't get out of bed and the pain got so bad I couldn't stand. And, um, so they had to wheel me into the emergency room and I'm not sure how your lumbar punctures were. Mine were horrific. They couldn't figure it out how to do a lumbar puncture. And, um, afterwards they said, you have viral meningitis. There's nothing we can do, but I had horrible. And ever since I've had challenges with chronic pain and migraines and having them and three sinus surgeries. So for doctors to say, yeah, there's nothing you know, you're going to recover and nothing's going to happen was totally incorrect. Um, I think what it does is sometimes messes up your nervous system, you know, and your pain is your nervous system. So, um, you know, I never have been able to get doctors to state that you can have side effects from viral. Um, now, I've, I've seen, I've read, I haven't met, but I've seen and read that people with meningitis, viral or bacterial, have all kinds of side effects. And, you know, the you know, the bacterial, as you know, ha- has different detrimental side effects to having it, you know, and, you know, possibly dying from it. But, um, yeah, I-, I wish they would do more in understanding the consequences of having it. I think um, with viral, they think, again, that, you know, bacterial, there's nothing they can give you. It's just going to eventually go away. Um, and it doesn't. So, um, or at least it mimics. So I still get pain where it mimics having meningitis um although you know i obviously don't have it but yeah yeah that's um really bizarre and i work with some meningitis organizations notably uh coma which is a confederation of meningitis organizations and it's a worldwide um confederation for lack of a better word of of organizations Mm -hmm. people that try to make more awareness Uh, meningitis is a vaccine preventable disease but there really isn't much you can do for viral. But in, in some of the research that I've, I'm aware of is that it's so the meningitis effects, there's a fluid between your um, that, that goes between your um, uh, spinal cavity and your, your brain cavity. And so meningitis, if it gets meningitis means it's the infection or inflammation of the meninges, which is the lining of the brain and spinal cavity. 
and the the fluid that is in there. So it yeah, all of your nerves, everything is that's that's the whole thing plus your brain. So that's kind of a sensitive area, obviously, for your body. Mm -hmm. So lots of things can certainly can happen from that. It just it's amazing that it's the viral one as most viruses are they're not treatable but you know it's crazy that you know like how did you get it do you know anything about that i mean i'm sure your answer is i don't no. know yeah i'm assuming college right i was graduating um so it was my it was may so i was just graduating from college you know it, it's hard to know how i got i'm assuming college you know somehow yeah. it, it was connected with that um, I think the hardest part is having discounted from doctors and yeah. things like that, that no, there's no way you can have side effects to this, right. but I had sinuses of a 65 year old. So, you know, Yikes. go figure on that one, you know? Yeah. And you ask about the lumbar puncture. That is, I think the, the, mo the most effective way to, to understand if it's meningitis or not is the lumbar puncture, which is a spinal tap more commonly known. And my experience with that was actually fine because I was in a coma. When oh, I wow. Me, so I, oh. I don't have any memory. Yeah. There was one, there was one oh, to, to diagnose it. And then one, I had two. So one to diagnose it and then one to, you know, take, see if it had cleared up because you can tell from the, the fluid. So mm. yeah, well, I know it was pretty traumatic. Um, it's a big needle. I've seen it. it. No, I've seen it. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a big needle, and they put it right in your, right between, you know, two vertebrae in your in your spine, and just yeah, pull out a, you know, pint of fluid or something that can't be can't be pleasant. No. All right. Well, let's talk about something that may be a little bit more pleasant than a uh, <laughs> than a spinal tap, which actually could be a lot of things. You you're an author, as I mentioned earlier, making it mm -hmm. work. And you also had something happen. You, you, you kind of started working in the HR world out of school and, mm -hmm. and getting into professional stuff, but you had an, in, an incident or an, I guess an accident or an auto accident that happened with you. And it kind of made you aware of things that can happen to people. And then all of a sudden things at work all of a sudden are a little different and you may need some accommodations yeah. or things that, that, uh, all of a sudden are front and center for you. So let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm a very common case. Um, so I started out marketing um, because I, you know, had chronic pain from having meningitis. And so I always had jobs that I could work around my symptoms. And so I went into managing a temp agency for about three and a half years and then moved to California and started HR, but I did consulting HR. So through a professional employer organization called a PEO. So I had about 50 clients. So I did employee relations, human resource management, policies and procedures. You know, so I worked, I was in and out of the office a lot. So I was able to really manage my health. People knew I had something, but it wasn't really talked about. And so when I got rear-ended, that kind of said, okay, that's enough, Cheryl. No more. You can't keep pushing yourself this way, my body said. So that's when, um, you know, I wasn't recovering like I should be from being rear-ended. Now, I did get rear-ended in a way that I had accidentally put on the brake when it happened because I was braking when he hit me. Um, so, uh, you know, that caused me to work part-time and, and to really have to ask for accommodations and seeing the response of the employer. Now, I was very lucky. I worked for a company 
it was a MENA staff. I, th- I can't remember. It's called Insperity now. Actually, it was a, it's a really good CEO. They really tried, but, you know, the um, managers didn't really know. And I worked with a lot of HR people who were like, wow, you know, we're not doing a good job of <laughs> accommodating people. We're seeing what you're going through and this is not good. And we're, you know, because we all dealt with accommodations with clients and we really didn't do a really good job, understand it, but we were very common in that field. And HR still has a challenge with this because the responsibilities are so much for HR and to have one specialty of workplace accommodations that takes a lot of time and energy and processing and revisiting and exploring accommodations. So anyways, through all that, um, you know, and I had the interplay of all these different laws and leave of absence and workers comp and all this that I realized that, you know, HR needed to understand the accommodation process better. Um, and also the employee needs to understand because it really takes a lot of understanding the, the employee understanding what it is they need and being able to communicate that effectively without having to tell them everything about your disability. So it put me on the journey of getting my master. I moved back to Texas and got my master's in dispute resolution and conflict management. Really started to specialize in the ADA. And I was getting ready to, well, maybe I should do some more HR. And I started, oh, I need to hide this. You know, I started thinking about ways I need to hide. I was like, wait a second, wait a second. Why did I go through all this, you know? And I realized that, well, maybe I just need to write a book. And I started writing it. And my partner was like, he was getting his master's. He's like, just do it, just do it. And it was supposed to be a 200 page book. And it ended up being two and a half years, 555 pages graphs, charts, examples, um, and, you know, just a step-by-step career. It it is a career book, and it's referenced by employers, advocates, vocational rehabilitation specialists, attorneys. I work with, you know, I've worked with attorneys. I'm with the American Bar Association. They sold it on their website. I I sell it on Amazon, but because the whole goal is to mediate, is to work together. Um, now, of course, I do have in there, if you've done everything, you've done the process, and they still don't work with you, well, you know, you don't have much of a choice, but you really don't want to go the route of filing a lawsuit if it's possible. It, it's not, it, nobody benefits from it. It's extremely stressful. So my goal was to try to find every way to understand the process, how you can communicate with employers that may necessarily not understand the law, which is common, especially if they're small. But you could do it in a way that you're not um, disrespecting them. You know, you're you're providing them the information they need to help you. And um, and I even talk about dealing with difficult managers or, or people that are difficult. And then I go from the stages of all the accommodation process to the other part, which is, okay, now you've got this, right? You're managing your accommodations at work, you're doing good, but how do you manage your personal life? That's a whole different story because if you don't have that support, then it's going to be hard to be working. So I talk about that um, part of my book. So it's called Making It Work, Managing Your Health Condition Through ADA Workplace Accommodations. And the reason I called it that was a lot of people who have disabilities do not recognize themselves as a disability. They call it a health condition or a medical condition. And I totally respect that. I mean, everybody sees it differently. Disability has a really bad name if you actually look it up in the dictionary. And disability under the ADA is totally different. 
<laughs> I would say at least a third of the population that's working has a disability would, defined under yeah, the ADA, at least. Yeah, right. yeah, so it, you know, so I, I wanted to take that away and and open that up to a lot more people and um, to understand that, you know, there's opportunities to help enhance your ability to perform your job. Everybody can do the job sometimes but it may be that they need different ways in order to do it, you know, based on their skill set or their health condition, you know. And as we age, as the workforce is getting older, you know, this is, you know, plus, you know, we need uh, we need to open up the 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 job opportunities to people with that we necessarily weren't traditionally looking at that have the skills and we're missing out. Uh, disabilities, people with disabilities are the biggest untapped market, employment market, you know, so as far as applicants. And so we need to tap into that. And we have the technology to support what they need to do in order to do the job. So it's an exciting time, actually. And, you know, with the, um, our, you know, going through the pandemic and stuff, it's been a wake-up call for everybody that nobody's immune to it, you know. It's not like you have this special power that you've gotten sick and nobody, you know, other people haven't. <laughs> it's just sometimes the look at the draw where you've been and whatever, you know, whatever. So, and I think it was a wake up call for a lot of people. And now you have people with long term COVID who qualify as a disability. So, yeah, let's talk a little bit about ADA. Let's kind of unpack that. The ADA is not new. Sure. It's nope. close to 30 plus years old now, right? 91, was that? Nine, yeah, 1990s when it became law went into effect. 1991. What does that do, and and how does Title One? It's a civil rights that? law, and it is it prohibits discrimination with individuals with disabilities in all areas of public life. Um, just to give you an example, my aunt has post-polio syndrome, and so she was one of those before 1990s that didn't have access to transportation, to schools, to to, you know, government sites and that sort of thing. And, and now um, the, all these, there's five titles and all these address disabilities and giving people with disabilities equal access. So that's employment, public service, like state and government sites, public accommodations like restaurants, retail stores, uh, telecommunications, transportation. Um, and it really covers mostly private employers with 15 or more employees, including state and local government. So that doesn't matter how many they have, but all state and local government are covered. Employment agencies, labor unions. Um, so it covers a lot. And even if you, in different states, let's say in California, if you have at least five employees, you're covered under the ADA and what they call FIA, Fair Employment Housing Act. So you really have to look at your state because there's a lot of states that cover people with disabilities with less than 15 employees. So out of the five, employment's Title I. So Title I, what it does, it um, helps people from being discriminated against because of a disability in all areas of employment. That is, it's, you know, applying for the job, um, hiring, firing, compensation, job training. So what that means is if you are, if you're performing your job and you need an accommodation, then, you know, you have to be qualified for the job. But if you can do the job with an accommodation, then 
you have the right to that. You still have to be qualified for the job, meaning that you still have to have the skills and education. You have to have, you know, the experience. So what it doesn't do, it doesn't give you more benefits than other people. It's equal access. So sometimes equal access means accommodation, right? Ramps up to um, being able to get into an office space or parking space. You know, inside it would be, you know, sit-stand desk if you have back impairment. So Title I covers all the employment, and that's basically what my book talks about. Um, to go into all the other different <laughs> titles are a whole different animal. Yeah, it's probably itself. a lot of, yeah. lot of detail there. So, as for example, you mentioned the standing desk. Is the employer expected to pay for the accommodation, or does the government get involved in, in somehow making it easier for the employer to make those accommodations? No, so the employer pays, but the average, the highest pay, the average cost is under five hundred dollars. Okay. So, and that that's probably one of the most, the biggest misconception, and a lot of them don't cost anything. It may be just in the way that they change, you know, the hours that they work. Um, you know, if they're taking some medication, that makes them really drowsy. So, if they're able to do their job from ten to seven versus eight to five then that would be an accommodation. And a lot of them is flexible scheduling. Of course, you're here in the remote work. That has been life-changing for so many of yeah. us, um, even hybrid, you yeah. know. COVID sending people home for that time period, really, you know, obviously COVID was bad and it's, there's, you know, I, w- I wouldn't, I, I don't want to do that again by any means or mm-hmm. all, the, all the things that happened there. But there are some changes that happened, particularly for me, where, you know, we shut down, everybody goes home. And in, in my world, what I do is uh, I haven't gone back to the office and it's, you know, mm-hmm. for a long time, I, I have a visual impairment. This is ambiguous to blind. I, I don't see well. I'm totally blind in my right eye. I have about 2300 vision in my left eye, which just, you know, I don't, it's hard to explain, which is why I call it ambiguous to blind. But somebody mentioned it to me the other day. I've been doing some writing and one of the ways I, exp- I express is it's like looking through binoculars backwards. So everything kind of looks kind of like you're looking at things far away. And uh, so driving and transportation become an issue as well as um, seeing things on the screen. But with the Internet and voice over IP and, you know, the Internet, I guess, all of a sudden I don't need to be at the office at mm-hmm. all or maybe 90 plus percent of the time. So, you know, that's one of the things that I, I've been trying to work from home for quite some time and never really was able to for whatever reason, make it happen. But COVID did that. And I think it did it. I think, I think a lot of employers understood that actually maybe we don't need all this office space. Maybe we don't need all these locations or or we don't need everybody to be together all the time. Now there is some, obviously something to be said about being together and camaraderie and all the things about employment and all that and, and businesses and groups and stuff. But I don't know. It was certainly a game changer for me on how that worked and it continues to be the case. Yeah. One of the things I've just done, I, I'm still doing the series is um, remote workplace accommodation secrets. So my YouTube series is accommodation secrets, um, but workplace accommodation secrets. But right now I'm doing one on remote work so that employers can learn how they can process requests for accommodation. Because as you we're talking, you know, there are some jobs you can do totally remotely. You know, there's a lot of technology that allows for that to happen. 
but you have to know what questions to ask. You got to know what to look at to determine that. And a lot of employers will jump and say, no, that's not our policy. Well, you can't do that as an accommodation. You have to still consider it. But sometimes if you're trying to consider it, you don't know what to ask. So what I've been helping is teaching, you know, what is it that you need to ask? How do you determine that? And that will help, you know, and with the, and on top of the technology that's out there, that has really been a game changer too for us, that so many people are able to do things that they weren't able to do before because of the accessibility nature of it. But our technology is moving so fast that I can't even keep up with it. And there is actually a lot of websites people could go to, like, I think it's called accessibility.org. Um, where you can research yourself, you know, all the different types of accessibility out there. And we know with our iPhones, we know with our computers, Microsoft, Apple, you know, they have a lot of accessibility features. But then there's a lot of others, too, that you don't think about that, you know, and, you know, employees or people with disabilities can look at and research to help their employers. Because the reason you get a lot of pushback, too, from employers is they're afraid. Just as much as the employee with a disability is afraid, they're just as afraid as you are. Um, they're afraid of what they're allowed to ask. They're afraid of what they can, you know. Yeah, as soon as they disclose something, or, then things change. Yeah. Or all of a sudden, yeah. you know, I don't want to lose my job. And mm -hmm. there's all those. There, There is a ton of considerations. And as a guy who early in the, in the stages of, of losing sights, certainly faked it. And, mm. you know, didn't necessarily want to draw attention to myself. I can, I can relate to those and, 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 mm -hmm. you know, it, I, I tend to look at the positive things in life. I try to be happy like your, your book, you mentioned earlier, the happiness mm -hmm. thing, but you know, um, there are times I know in, in interviews or interactions I've had with employers that I, I suspect my impairment or disability was certainly a something that was highly, you know, involved in the, in the decision to not, to not hire me. And, and that's troubling, of course. And, you know, most of my, my disabilities are all invisible, which makes it even more difficult mm -hmm. to, mm -hmm. um, to and explain and describe. So, mm -hmm. um, you like the question about when you disclose and, and should you immediately or do you do it later or do you fake it till you make it? And I, I don't know if there's a right answer. I'm sure there are better. You know, Whenever you want to do it. <laughs> yeah, there's things to consider, but it really is up to you. Um, and it, it, the thing I try to really push is take the bulls by the horn. Understand the law. Understand your rights and responsibility. Understand the employers. And even when you take the bulls by the horn with the employer, you know, do your research. Re use the words request for an accommodation under the ADA. Ask for what you need. Now, you know, they don't have to give you exactly what they need if they can find something as a, is effective. But the fact is, when you start taking control and giving them the information that they need in order to provide you the accommodation, HR just loves it, absolutely loves it, because they don't have to ask the questions. They don't have to do the research and try to be careful about what they ask or whatever, because you're providing that information you know, you're really just explaining the limitations and barriers. You don't need to tell them a lot about your disability. You know, it, it has to qualify, but most things qualify as a disability. You know, if you have a physical or mental impairment that is substantially 
limit limits a major life activity, meaning that if you had, let's say you, you walk, you know, you're limited in walking. If you, if you're limited in walking compared to the general population, not somebody your age, but to the general population, then you're substantially limited in that um, impairment in that physical or um, mental impairment. Um, if you have a history, if you have cancer and, you know, you need an accommodation to go to the doctors for follow-up, even though you're in remission, you know, if they treat you as having a disability when you don't, you're protected. Now you don't get an accommodation if you're disregarded as regarded and you don't have one. But the thing is, is the key, the whole key for me, and I had a, a really great editor. I was very lucky that to help me. I was like, I want this to be simple. I want this to be step by step so that they get what it is they need to do. I want to take the stress out of it. Cause as you know, John, I'm sure from what you're describing, there was a lot of stress of all the things you had to think about all the time. Definitely. And if you know yeah. exactly what you need to focus on, what you need to provide and what their responsibilities are, it's a lot easier. Um, of course, you sometimes you do have to bring in job accommodation network. Um, you've got um, the ADA national network. Um, you have people like me that I normally work with employers, but I do sometimes work with employees, but to have, or advocates, you know, even your vocational rehabilitation commission can help you get accommodations. Um, you know, normally employers will, are required to do that, but if you want to help the employer and say, Hey, I talked to vocational rehab, they're willing to help with this, you know, anything to make that process easier for the employer until they get up to speed. Now, your Amazons, your Microsoft, they're up to speed. They have their accommodation departments. They are. But when you get to the smaller companies, they just don't have the resources. So anything you can do to make it a little bit easier helps the process. And anytime they hear the ADA and accommodation requests, they pay attention. Yeah, so. their ears perk up, right? I think yeah. maybe what you're saying, too, is that it's it's beneficial for you to be as prepared as you can when interacting with HR for these combination type things, because I think HR may be woefully uneducated or uninformed as far as what things are needed, mm -hmm. but they, they, as, as part of their job, want to make sure they fulfill those four people. So mm -hmm. the, the combination request, if it's full of all the detail and things necessary is probably welcome, I guess is kind of what you're saying. It really is. It's a relief. Because it's kind of maybe awkward. They they don't know what to ask, or mm -hmm. they don't want to offend someone, or there's it's, mm -hmm. it certainly can be awkward. Well, and your managers, the first thing they think of is performance, right? They're responsible for performance. So right. the first thing when you say something, oh my gosh, this person's not going to perform, yeah. and that's not true. I mean, even if you have to take leave, that's just part of what your rights and are as an employee. Um, so, you know, if you're under, you know, if you can take leave of absence and, you know, you're qualified to take it, or even if you don't, you can request it as an accommodation. But yeah, the more that you can show too, it's like marketing yourself, right? We market ourselves constantly, you know, whatever we're doing. And if you're showing them, you know, with these accommodations, this is how I can do my job. You're always doing that anyways. You're just doing it now with a disability and a barrier that you're trying to overcome so you can perform your job. So it's just a different form in which you're marketing yourself. But we should all be marketing ourselves all the time. 
for opportunities, whether it's at work or, you know, other things that we do in our life. So what are the kind of some of the common, like, I mean, you probably have some horror stories working on both sides of this thing from the employee and the employer side. I do. Um, yeah, I, one of them is, is the remote work. That's why I, I've done remote work. Cause it happens a lot with remote work, um, is that they have a policy that says you can work, you know, three days in the office, two days out of the office. And they're so afraid that they're going to set precedent if they do something different than, than anyone else and they're determined to find something wrong with what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And it, I had a situation where it's, they're doing so many illegal things because of the fact they're determined to prove that this is, they don't want this to set precedent, which it won't anyways. Um, it's, it's it on a case by case basis or they, you know, they find, I had one that, you know, brought a dog in to interview and, found out they make comments on their interview process about her dog and didn't want her to bring the dog in um, to work. It happens a lot and it, it's unfortunate. And I, again, I think there's a lot of employers that are really trying. Um, and, but I also think there's their HR is so challenged with the amount of work amounts of laws and regulations they have to comply with. The administrative work has gotten to the point where not one person can do it. You've got to have three or four. And then you bring in a request for accommodation. And that takes days, weeks, months. And then you have to follow up. You have to document. So if you are providing those resources for them and they just have to implement, or even if it's similar, right, even if it's not exactly, at least they have an idea you're going to make that process easier, you know, always make sure to document, but um, yeah, it's, you know, but then there's other companies that will do whatever they can for their employees. And I've seen that too. And uh, where the employee doesn't understand and the employee, employers try to do everything can to support them, but what they're asking for is unreasonable. So it happens on both sides. So, you know, where they're trying to give them leave for a pregnancy but, you know, wants to work from home, but there's no way her job is she can work from home. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, but in a lot of time, I would say 95% of the time it's misinformation. Uh, and it's also fear. It's um, bad experiences, um, you know. So the more that we can clarify what it really means, what those laws really mean, um, the better and for both sides, it's one of the HR is always, we've always been kind of coveting our laws and regulations, <laughs> not wanting to know everybody know all the details. This is one we really need the employees to know. You really need to know what it is we need. You, you need to help us so we can help you kind of thing. Um, but I know people listening to this, a good portion have had probably really bad experiences. Um, but there are, I have seen some really good companies that also have done whatever they can because they value that employee. And especially ones that have had employees that have gotten sick over time and they know what their performance is like. So you see it's, it's shifting, but it's taking time to shift. And it's what, 2009 was the amendment where it really covered more employees or people with disabilities. Um, what, we're in 2023. So this is, what, 14 years? Yeah. later and we're still grappling and, and really it, it 
Because what I found when I wrote the book is there's so much information, but there's no easy process. There's Mm -hmm. no easy explanation. And the more that we can just get to the bottom lines of things and have those boundaries, right? What each person, where that boundary is, it helps. Now, you've mentioned uh, state agencies or commissions. And in my case, in Mm -hmm. Texas, the uh, Commission for the Blind was, was a resource for me. They've changed names mm-hmm. a few times. That's not what it's currently called. But I've noticed that in the last uh, maybe four or five years that there are some private sector firms popping up that do some of what those state agencies did, um, but just do it on a more effective basis. Because, you know, like any government or state agency, there's all kinds mm-hmm. of red mm-hmm. tape and things. But there, uh, there, right. there's two in particular that I've had on the podcast. One is called Insight and the other is called and they both uh, they they do different things, and I don't want to speak for them exactly. You can listen to those episodes to kind of get an idea what they do, but they kind of help bridge the gap between what the state or local government offers and what employers are looking for, and and also get involved in kind of training and maybe some onboarding kind of things with companies. And I think that's kind of a shift that's maybe happening. Have, have you experienced any of that in, in your, in, in, from what you're looking at? I do, especially on LinkedIn. So I, and I, uh, people will actually, organizations will contact me. I had one just recently, I haven't had a chance to follow up with, and they actually help people with disabilities um, get remote jobs, jobs remotely, you know, mm-hmm. that they can do. Um and that's a private company. Um, and there is um, another one, it's called Inclusivity. And so it's a community that is, um, has employers and you know, people looking for jobs. So yeah, you're seeing a lot of this. And I, and I really encourage people, if they really want to look for opportunities with people with disabilities, whether you're hiring people with disabilities or you are a person with a disability or medical condition, health condition, however you want to say it, connecting on LinkedIn and looking for those groups. There is a group called Diversity at Work. Um, There's called um, Disability Advocates I'm in. There are several groups that you can get connected with, and they have all kinds of resources. And those companies tap in to those groups to find people. So I, I just think LinkedIn is the place to go for that type of thing, um, to find the different ones in your area and um, to see what opportunities are out there, because they are. So if there's somebody listening who's working at their job and they have some sort of a disability or health condition or something, as you said, but they've been scared to or just maybe not sure the approach to take because they, they fear what, you know, what may happen if they ask their employer for something. Now, obviously reading your book would be a good start, right? So making it work, <laughs> we'll, we'll point people there. Or the workbook and the workbook. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But what would you say, what's kind of the strategy kind of in general for that person? And, and, and also well, there are okay. some, some laws and things that do protect that person too, right? That is, and each state is different. So there are some states that have more protections than others. So like in California, um, it's if you are limited in a major life activity, where in the ADA is substantially limited, so you have to be less limited to be covered. So what I say is don't worry about whether you're covered under the ADA. 
don't go, don't worry about that. If you have a medical condition that is causing barriers at work, whether it's, you know, when you get to work or you need more flexible work, you need to see your doctors, you know, you need a different workplace setup, you need accessibility because of low vision or other uh, impairments, go ahead and request an accommodation. Don't worry because employers are encouraged. I mean, and it's written in the law, do not try to determine whether they have a disability. Your focus should be how do you eliminate those barriers and limitations? How do you help them overcome them so they can perform their job with or without an accommodation? Their main functions. You know, it's why you've been hired, those main functions. So don't worry about that. Don't, I, I keep telling people, don't try to figure out, do I, am I have a disability? You probably do. 90% of the time, you probably do qualify. And, and your focus is, what do you need? in order to overcome those, you know, and it may be like we talked about, you know, visible disabilities are a lot harder. So in most cases, you will need a doctor's note because it's not obvious. Now, if you're in a wheelchair or if, you know, like in if your case, if you're blind and you're using your um, a stick or a service dog or something like that, that's more obvious. Mm-hmm. Or if you're hearing impaired and, you know, you're communicating that and it's obvious to them, but if it's not, then and work with your doctors. And when I say work with your doctors, it doesn't have to be an MD. It can be a physical therapist. It can be um, any type of um, occupational therapist. Actually, I really encourage occupational therapists. They're they're wonderful at ideas. Um, so go out to those other um, type of medical providers that aren't necessarily an MD, but people that can help you decide what type of accommodations you need, just like, um, you know, um, uh, the organization you're talking to that helped you, you know, they know what type of accommodations have helped. So look for those type of advocates um, to help you um, and to provide you with ideas and, you know, just to kind of throw some ideas and just use that word request for accommodation. And people might be kind of surprised what an accommodation actually is. I mean, it could be something real simple, right? Right. So it's a modification or adjustment to the workplace, whether it's access to the workplace or um, ability to perform the job, your actual workplace, your computer, your whatever you're interacting with, and its benefits and privileges of employment. So that's always a surprise. So if you have to go to a conference or if you're choosing to go to a conference, then they have to make it accessible to you. So you may need an accommodation to get there, maybe an interpreter, or maybe you need, you know, um, someone to, you know, you know, read you the notes or something like that, or a certain type of room or assistance with the flying. That is a benefit and privileges of employment for other people. So they need to make that so that it's not a barrier limitation to you. If it's a party, if it's the break room. Those are all, because I would say um, most people don't realize that that is a benefit that is equal access. So if you can't get into the bathroom or if you can't get into the break room or have access or food, right? Uh, I have, um, I'm gluten sensitive. My partner has um, celiac. So he can't have any cross-contamination. So if they're going to have a party, then they need to provide food that's going to be safe for him, you know? The thing is, is we're humans and we're putting the human element into the workplace and we grow, change, get old, we get sick, we get better, we get an accident. <laughs> we're human and we have to work with that, right? And we just have to look at that. And it's not like the olden days where 
you know, boy, you just prayed that you didn't get sick or get hurt or anything, because if you did, you didn't have a job, you know, uh, watching my aunt, which she went through growing up is horrible, you know, and then finally an employer said, well, I'm going to give you a chance. Show me that you can do the job. And this was before the ADA. Um, so the, the challenges were a lot more severe. Now the, the human element has come into the workplace and we know that things are going to happen. We want to keep good employees. And so we've got to do what we can so that they have what they need in order to perform. So, okay. As we kind of wrap things up here, um, Cheryl, what advice do you have for people that aren't sure if they need accommodations or maybe just want to know more? Like, are there some, are there some keys that everybody should be thinking about? Yes. Just realize that it's, you need to be prepared. So really understand your rights and responsibilities as the employee and, uh, and what the employer's rights. And so that when and if you ever need an accommodation, you know what that process is. And also make sure you document any kind of communication you have with the employer. Because one of the things that happens a lot is uh, a lot of stakeholders on a need-to-know basis are part of that accommodation process. So the communication gets kind of lost of what it is you even need because everybody's confused. So sometimes it's actually the employee that knows what's going on more than everybody else because everybody's scrambling to make sure they're complying, right, the employer. So the more that you can help support the process, the easier it's going to be for everybody. So, And I know it, it seems like a lot to take on, but once you understand it, it's not as hard as you think it is once you kind of get the basics. And you don't need to know it as a lawyer or as an HR person, but just enough to navigate it and to know what those boundaries are. And I really go into that in my book because I think that's critical to know what those boundaries are. And if you stay within those boundaries, you'll be fine. Yeah, I think that's a great place to start is making mm-hmm. it work. Cheryl Ellis, thanks a bunch for uh, stopping by the podcast. Now, people are going to want to know how we get a hold of you. Yeah. Where, where do we do that? You can find me at um, augHRS.com. That's A-U-G-H-R-S.com. That's for Augmented HR Solutions. Um, you can find my book on Amazon, Making It Work, Managing Your Health Conditions Through ADA Workplace Accommodations. And you can find my YouTube channel, um, Workplace Accommodation Secrets. So hopefully I'll see you guys soon. Yeah, we'll link <laughs> to the book and the YouTube and LinkedIn and all that in the show notes as well. Cheryl, it's, it's been a lot of fun and, uh, yes, great, I've enjoyed it. Great getting to know you here and, uh, look forward to collaborating again soon. Yes. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for spending time with the ambiguously blind podcast. Please rate and write a review wherever you subscribe and connect and share with us at ambiguouslyblind.com.